All right, well, I have good news for everyone this morning. The Secret, we're in our nine-week series book study of Colossians, and this week we are going to do The Secret. I've been playing a shell game with y'all for the last four weeks, talking about The Secret and yet never actually talking about The Secret. Well, this morning, the good news is we're actually going to talk about The Secret, so you won't feel gypped this morning. Well, The Secret, this is what we've been working through. We've actually been doing a book study of Colossians, a nine-week series. Yes, I know, nine weeks is a long time, and I really recognize that. I feel getting, I'm getting older just doing this series because it's been nine weeks. But I appreciate all of you who are willing to go nine whole weeks and commit to nine weeks. Give yourself a hand. All right, very good, yes. Anyway, our strategy is this. Here's what we've been doing. We have been building a house because I've had some, a little bit of fear of going through a book study in the past because it's kind of in-depth and in detail for Sunday morning. And I know that a lot of times, you know, we get up on Sunday morning and we have the best interest at heart. You know, we want to go to church. We want to worship God. But it's hard because our life is so busy, busy, busy that sometimes we sit in church and we feel like, just want to take a nap, and we're tired from the week, and all those things kind of things happen. And that was one of my concerns. So I decided that in order to do a book study, what we would do instead of going through a lot of details about the book, that we would look and see how Paul constructed his letter to the church in Colossae. So we were going to do it a little different. Instead of talking about all the details that Paul talks about, instead, we're actually going to talk about how God inspired Paul to write the letter. What is the structure of the letter? What are the things in, Col- in the letter to Colossae? What are the things that are the big picture issues? What is the critical, what are the critical things? Now, a, a mention about tools. As many of you know, we don't have carpet in the foyer anymore. It's awesome. Looks great. Richard had a chance to do that on Friday and Saturday and put down the tile. It's a big help, and uh, so we're very appreciative of that. But on Friday, we had to scurry to get some things done, and we didn't have any help, so it was me and Pastor Rex and David and Richard who was here trying to get the carpet pulled up. And Richard, you know, he's a general contractor, so he had a coffee in his hand and was just watching us. I'm just kidding, of course. (laughs) Just kidding, just kidding. He was working hard. But we come there to pull up the carpet, and David's there pulling up the carpet, and I get there, and I'm trying to help pull up the carpet, and Rex comes with a tool to pull up the carpet. Guess what tool he brought? A pickaxe, because when you pull up carpet, you use a pickaxe, right? Everyone knows that, common sense. No, that's not the right tool, although in this situation, it actually worked very well. We were able to actually knock the carpet out of the way and use it to get the glue out, but generally speaking, you don't use a pickaxe to pull up carpet. Using the right tool is really important. You don't want to generally use a pickaxe to pull up carpet, and you don't want to use details to try to understand what Paul says. A lot of times we read the Bible, we read the letters of Paul, and we go to the end of the book, we go to the end of the letter, and we see Paul says a bunch of lists. Like he'll say, hey, people who love God, they'll live this way, and people who, love, who are not against God, they'll live this way. And we pick out some of those words, and we pick out some of those lists, but we don't realize the context. We don't understand why Paul is bringing up those lists to begin with. So we want to use the right tools for the job. So let's talk about how we're going to build the house and what we're going to do. The first week, Oh, let's do the Mad Libs. Everybody ready for their Mad Libs this week? Okay, let me just explain what we've been doing. Here's your Mad Lib. If you, it's in your bulletin if you want to take it out. If you remember what a Mad Lib is, it's a silly story that children do. This is actually not a Mad Lib. On side A, the one with all the writing, you'll see that what I've done is I've taken the book of Colossians and I've taken the frame, the skeleton, the structure of the book, and turned it into two paragraphs. 
And so what we're going to do is we're going to fill in the skeleton or the frame of the book of Colossians over this nine-week series. If you haven't had a chance to be here uh, those weeks, I have already actually filled in some of the blanks for you. So if you want to go back and read it over, you'll see what we've actually covered. Now, you can fill in the remaining blanks with silly adjectives and funny words if you want, but it won't be as profitable for you as if you just wait for the next couple of weeks and fill in what's on side B and transfer it over to side A. First week, what did we talk about? First week in our series, Paul says what? Hello, everybody. I'm Paul. I've never met you folks in Colossae, but here's what God has inspired me to write to you so that you will further your life in Christ. So the first week, we cleared the ground. What do we do? Paul says this. Paul says, let's get everything out of the way so we can build a house, so we can build a life that's worthwhile of God. First week, he starts by saying what? It's on your mad lib. He says, you are believers now. You're believers now, you're growing in your faith. What does this mean? This is why I'm writing the letter. So we cleared the ground. You guys are laughing at me for, I'm sweeping. Do I, do I need a, I need, I need something. Okay. All right, so clearing the ground, we're clearing the ground, we're clearing the ground. That's what Paul does by saying, here's the starting point. You are believers now. Now, the next week, second week, he says, let's get the vision. So what he does is he unrolls the plans, he looks at the plans, and he says, okay, what is the house that God wants us to build? What is the life that God wants for us to have? And he says this, he says, I'm praying for you that you will learn more about God so that you can honor God with your lives. What's the plan for our lives that God has? That we would honor God with our lives. How can we honor God with our lives? Well, we cannot honor God with our lives unless we know what honors God. This is a common problem. We get married and we say, well, I love my wife and I want to do things that honor her. So I'm going to watch a lot of TV. I'm going to play a lot of video games. I'm going to blow off family time for sports because that's what shows love for her, right? Not exactly. Not exactly. And so we learn, hopefully we learn the hard way that sometimes what we want in life is not necessarily what our spouse wants in life. And in the same way, sometimes things that feel right to us are not necessarily things that honor God. And we have to choose, if we want to honor God, to do the things that God wants us to do. That makes common sense. And so we need to open up the plans, Paul says, and we need to figure out what it is that God wants us to do so that we can honor God with our lives. Now, last week, no, sorry, third week, we talked about laying the foundation. And Kirk and Richard, they informed me what the word here is called the form work. We're gonna, we built the form work in the third week. Before you pour this concrete, that is the wood shape that they build with the rebar and, and all the pipes and stuff coming out of it that will actually hold the foundation. And this was the most important part. This is the center of what Paul's trying to say. Not the stuff he deals with in three and four about how to live our lives. That's not the central part. What Paul is saying here is that the form work, the biggest issue, if we're going to put down a house of, that honors God, is that we will recognize that what? That God is supreme and that Jesus himself is the God in flesh. Jesus is God in flesh. And that all of our worship and everything that we owe to God, we worship Jesus because he is who God is. He came and was a sacrifice for us. Oh, I'm getting to the part of the second part. Let's pour the concrete. Laying the foundation part two, which was last week, we poured the concrete. This is what we were doing last week. And what does Paul say? He says, listen, that once we have accepted the fact that Jesus is God, that we recognize that his act as God was to make us do a lot of stuff and jump through a lot of hoops to make him happy, right? No. What was God's supreme act for people? 
was to be willing to send his son as a sacrifice for us. We talked about how last week in the Greco-Roman sort of idea in the ancient world, people were all into sacrificing for the God because that's what you did. The God was the big person. You were the peon. What do peons do? Peons give their lives a sacrifice for the bigger person. That's the way the world works. God, the one true God in the Bible, flips everything on its head and says, no, no, no. God himself will sacrifice for you. And that's why it's radical. That's why Jesus' death on the cross is radical. That's why being the Christ for us is radical because it is the exact opposite of the way people thought that you were supposed to do. You were supposed to do everything for the God and hope that God would honor you. But God says, no, no, no. The way it really is is that I will sacrifice for you because I love you. And people in the ancient world, when they heard the gospel, they could not believe it. It was just totally crazy to them. They could not accept it. So today we're going to erect a frame. Everybody know what the frame is? That's the two by fours, the wood that goes up on either side. I had a picture, but the elves, or if you were here the last couple of weeks, the demons, because the ancient world people believed that demons would come in and steal your, your coffee and steal your scones and everything you had for breakfast, so you didn't get a chance to eat it yet. Well, they stole my picture of framework out of my, uh, out of my PowerPoint, so it's not there. But we all know what it looks like. We all seen buildings as they're being erected, the two by fours coming up out of the ground, the framework, that's what we're going to do. We're going to day, we're going to look at the framework of this book of Colossians. So we're going to be in Colossians chapter 1, verse 24 through 2 through 5. If you want to open your Bibles there, you're welcome to do that. Um, you can open up paper Bibles. There's even some under the chairs, or you can look at your iPhone or your Droid or your whatever you may have of digital your e-reader, whatever it is that you have the Bible on. Go and open to Colossians chapter 1, verse 24 through 25. It'll be up on the Jumbotron as well. Let's go and look real quickly and see what Paul says here. Colossians 1, verse 24. So Paul says, I am glad when I suffer for you in my body, for I am participating in the sufferings of Christ that continue for his body, the church. Now, as I mentioned last time, Paul, to make a book in between the foundational part and the rest of the letter, he starts talking a little bit about himself and his role to play in this. So there's actually a book in there between what we were talking about last week and what we're continuing on here. So then he writes, God has given me the responsibility of serving his church by proclaiming his entire message to you. This message was kept secret for centuries and generations past, but now it has been revealed to God's people. Here it goes. For God wanted them to know that the riches and glory of Christ are for you Gentiles too. And this is the secret that we've been waiting for. Now, first service thought was anticlimactic. So don't, if you've been holding your breath for four weeks, you can let it out now, but it's not as anticlimactic as you think. This is the secret. Christ lives in you. This gives you assurance of sharing his glory. So we tell others about Christ, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all the wisdom God has given us. We want to present them to God perfect in their relationship to Christ. That's why I work and struggle so hard, depending on Christ's mighty power that works within me. I want you to know how much I have agonized for you in the church at Laodicea and for many other believers who have never met me personally. I want them to be encouraged and knit together by strong ties of love. I want them to have complete confidence that they understand God's mysterious plan, the secret which is Christ himself. In Christ, in Jesus, lies hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. I'm telling you this so no one will deceive you with well-crafted arguments. For though I am far away from you, my heart is with you, and I rejoice that you are living as you should and that your faith in Christ is strong. All right, so let's pick up our Mad Lib here this morning. Here's the first thing that we're going to talk about is that in order to do this, in order to live our lives, in order to build this life that God wants for us to have, so to do that, let me let you in on a little secret. What is that little secret? 
Christ lives in you. Now, let's pick this up from last week because for many of you, this may seem anticlimactic. I could tell everybody's faces on Sunday morning, they were looking for something a little more, I mean, first service, they were looking for something more scandalous. They were looking for something a little more radical than just Christ living within us. But let's talk about what this means and how this works. Paul explains that our lives are bound to Christ. So when we talk about Colossians here, we need to understand the context in which it was written and what Paul was saying and how radical it was at the time. When Paul writes that we are in Christ and that Christ lives in us, we are actually bound to Christ. A lot of people don't realize this, but when you make a commitment to follow Jesus, it's not sort of supposed to be something that we just kind of do because we just feel like it one day because we have some free time. So let's just go down to church and make some commitment and raise our hand and do something along those lines. But when we actually follow Jesus, we are actually committing to be a follower of him. And we're saying that for the rest of our lives, we're going to be a follower of Jesus. There's no ifs, there's no ands, there's no but. It's a pretty extensive contract that we are agreeing to. Even though sometimes you think, I just raised my hand in church, it's no big deal. We're actually, if we really mean it, we're actually making a very serious contract. Now, Paul explains that our lives are bound to God. What does this exactly mean? Well, let's look at it in the ancient world sense. Remember I talked about last week, I talked about how a lot of the people in Colossae, there were a lot of Greeks, a lot of Romans, and their view of the world was very polytheistic. They had lots of different gods, and it was nothing for them to, on Monday, go to the temple of Zeus and make a sacrifice, hoping Zeus would do something good for them, and then one of their buddies saying, hey, let's go down to the temple of Dionysius on Friday night, bring a six-pack, and that's what we'll do, because that's how you worship Dionysius. You threw a party. I mean, what better God to worship than a party God, right? I mean, a lot of people in California would probably agree. That sounds like fun. That sounds like what I want to do. Here's the key, though, that in the ancient world, people had limited, most people had limited commitment level to their gods. You know why? They had limited commitment level because it was more of a, you scratch my back, I scratch yours system. How many of you know what a, I scratch your back, you scratch mine system looks like? Come on, all of you know what that looks like. That's the world. I mean, that's the world that we live in. That's the world that we live in. So it was no different. If you were of a certain tribe or you were a certain nation, then you were supposed to go worship in that temple and you would make a sacrifice to that God in the hopes that God, that God would do a special favor for you. So you would think, you know, Zeus is a good God. He's super powerful. I'm gonna, you know, I really would like this girl to go out with me. So what do I need to do? I know I need to go down to the temple and I need to make a sacrifice to Zeus and maybe his favor will, will work and she will say yes when I ask her out. That's the way the world works and it was logical. It made common sense to everybody. But you were not really bound to that God because if Zeus didn't work out, then what did you do? You just went down to the next temple and you made sacrifice there. Now, there were some people who were really committed to one God or another, but there was no type of commitment. When Christ came and he sacrificed for us, he changed that degree of commitment because when we accept Christ as our Savior, we are saying that we are bound to this one God. We are saying that we are not going to worship other gods. We're saying that we're going to worship this one true God, that we're going to be faithful to this one true God. Now, this is hard for us to understand, and the reason why it's hard for us to understand is because it's different than the way the world works. The world is pragmatic. The world is expedient. The world, we do what we get what we need to do, where ends justify the means. But with Christ, we are supposed to worship him and glorify him and he be our God because we made that commitment to him. Paul explains that our lives are bound to Christ. Let me just pick this up here in the text because what he's saying here is really important about how we are bound to him. So Paul even mentions that. He says here, he says, 
So we tell, uh, let's see, this message is kept secret. Uh, God has given me responsibility to serve. This message is kept secret. God wanted to know the riches and glory of Christ are for you Gentiles too. Uh, bring it back. This gives you assurance of sharing his glory. See, here's the thing. A lot of people in the ancient world, they did what? They made sacrifices to the random God, hoping the random God would help them. And when they died, they thought, well, whatever the random God will do, maybe Zeus, because I made a lot of sacrifice in life, maybe he will let me in to Mount Olympus and I'll be able to hang out with him as a servant in his court. That would be really cool. But the problem is, is that the way that God works, the real God, is very different because it's not a guessing game. It's not hoops that you have to jump through. It's the fact that when we accept Christ, we are bound to him. Now, what does that mean? That means we are bound in the good and we're bound in the bad. What is the bad that we're bound in with Christ? There's bad. What's the bad? What's the bad? Because we are bound with Christ. If we are believers in Jesus here today, that means we are bound to Christ. There's some good in that. And there's some bad. What's the bad? Do I have any brave folks here this morning? I don't think so. Do I, what's the bad? Anybody want to tell me what the bad is? What? Oh, targeted. Oh, okay, right. You're right. Our life will become more difficult. Why? Because we will be out of step with the world. You could take it one step further, John, and you could say that the bad thing about being bound with Christ is that we chose to follow a God who sacrifices, not who receives sacrifice. That's the huge difference. Zeus, I'm God. You make sacrifice to me. Followers of Zeus were like, yeah, that's the way it works. Whoever's the most powerful, they're the one who gets everything. But Christ is the opposite. Christ says, listen, I am God and I sacrifice for you and you will sacrifice for other people. So when you choose to follow Christ, you're choosing a life of sacrifice. You're choosing to love other people who don't love you. You're choosing to serve people who don't want to serve you. You're choosing to be nice and, and, and care for people who could care less about you. That's the bad. But there's also good too because we don't need to worry about what God is going to do because we know what God is going to do. We are bound with Christ if we are in Christ. And being bound with him means we share in his glory. We share in his riches. That one day when we stand before God that we won't have to guess what our position is because we are bound with Christ. We are a child of God just like Christ is. That when we stand before God one day that we will have, we will be, we will sit beside him. We will sit at that banqueting table. We will sit in a place of honor in heaven. Why? Because we were willing to sacrifice for Christ in this life. Now, Paul explains that that that's the great thing about this God is that I know this God sounds weird. I know this God sounds unusual. It certainly did to the people living back then. But this God is different and radical and better than every other God. Why? Well, first of all, it's real. But beyond the reality part of it, this is a God who actually promises things and delivers on his promise. It's not a fickle God that we sacrifice to hoping he will do something. But it's a God who is honor bound because we are bound with him. And here's the thing that blew everybody's minds, even though it seems so anticlimactic to so many of us today, that Christ dwells within us, that Christ dwells within us, that he is the God of all people, not just Jews, not just Greeks, not just Romans, not just Chinese, not just Americans, not just whatever, but everyone, everyone, that Christ is the one who dwells within us. And so here's the secret, Christ dwells. Now, why is this a secret? Why a secret? Is it because before Jesus, God never dwelled in anyone? No, actually, in the Old Testament, it talks about Holy Spirit dwelling in people too. 
So that would be sort of a, a misunderstanding. It would be oversimplistic understanding. Of course, we, we know there's a greater emphasis on it in the New Testament where it covers everybody. But what is the real key here about the way that Christ dwells in us now that's radical? Well, let me give you some examples. First of all, we need to understand how people in the ancient world would have heard this argument. One thing that we misunderstand about the ancient world, and it's not because people are always people. People are always people. But we are healthy. We live to ripe old age. Lance Armstrong is our hero. Why? Because he could beat cancer and beat the French and whatever. It's awesome, right? That's, that's one of our heroes. But in the ancient world, people lived short, brutal, and terrible lives. Children died coming out of the womb with a great amount of regularity. People, I mean, I've been in the far reaches of Africa, and I've seen people who are on their deathbed because of a cavity, a cavity, because they don't have antibiotics. They don't have anything. And of course, once the doctor comes and gives them the antibiotic, in like a couple days, they're right as rain again. But people in the ancient world would die of cavities and things that we think are just completely ridiculous today. People in the ancient world were so, they so hated the mortal body that they actually rebelled against it. And some of their most famous philosophers actually viewed the idea that our minds are like God, but that our bodies are so weak and corrupted and nasty and disgusting that it's better for us to die because we just want to get rid of these, this nasty body that we live in. Because they, uh, they didn't have any medicine. They didn't have any ability to take care of themselves. They just lived in a futile existence of a couple years, and then they died. And the few people who did live to 80 years old, they were celebrated as, as being almost like gods because they lived so long. And, and if you lived to 60, in the ancient world, you were automatically wise then because you just didn't live that long. It was very rare. To live to 60 is probably one in 100,000. I don't know. Don't, I'm not a statistician. Don't quote me on the number. But it was, it's not going to be a common occurrence. And so here's the thing. Instead of doing what popular religion said, which is the body is just weak and you, you just, you know, it's just going to pass and focus on the mind, focus on the interior, that God, the mystery that Christ, that, the mystery that Paul's talking about, the mystery of Christ is that God would actually what? Come down to earth and actually inhabit frail, nasty, disgusting human bodies. The Greeks hated this idea. When they heard this, they were like, no, don't tell. I cannot believe for a second that the God of the universe in his great glory seated in heaven would come down and occupy this dirty, nasty, disgusting body. Because they all knew that the body was weak. They didn't have Lance Armstrong. They had reality of living with no medicine, no help, no support, nothing. Short, brutal lives marked by war and famine. And so they could not believe for a second that Paul was in his right mind when he would say that the God of the universe would come down and live within people. We take it for granted because we know our bodies are strong. I mean, I grew up with comic books and cyborgs and you live for forever and all the, you know, all these kind of ideas that people have now. In the ancient world, it was totally, they had no concept of that. Now, there's other thing also, which is this. There's two meanings that Paul has here. The second meaning is this, is that when it says God lives, that Christ lives in us, he actually means also that Christ lives among us as well. Now, his living among us is the idea that God is the God, not just of the people who are Jewish, but also of Greek or Roman or anyone who calls upon the name of the Lord. 
Now, what's interesting is that, like I said, the ancient Jews, they understood the fact that God would dwell inside. They didn't have as big a problem with that. There's some references to that in the Old Testament, uh, specifically David and some other folks. So they didn't have a major problem with that. But what they could not stand is the fact that God would allow Greeks and Romans. I mean, like, look, I'm a Jew, right? So if God lives inside me, I'm the chosen people. It's okay. But a Greek, they thought Greeks were pigs. They literally called Greeks pigs. They thought they were nasty Greek pigs, and we don't want anything to do with them. And you're saying God's going to dwell that? That uncircumcised pig, God's going to dwell? No way. Uh, Not my God. Not this God. Uh Uh-uh. Not going to happen. What happened? The failure of the Israelites, the failure of Moses' people, was that they were supposed to take the good news that the Messiah would come to all the people of the world. They were supposed to be a missionary people. They were supposed to teach Greeks. They were supposed to teach Romans who God, who God was. But they failed to do it. Why? Because they were selfish and they kept it to themselves. And so by the time Jesus came, most Jews were totally against the idea that God, that God could dwell with Greeks and Romans and Gentiles. No way. Those people are pigs. They don't do anything right. They are not the people of God. Christ, however, is God of all people who call on him. And that's what's really cool because it doesn't matter whether you're Chinese, it doesn't matter whether you're Filipino, it doesn't matter whether you're Caucasian, it doesn't matter whether you're African-American, it doesn't matter what you are, it doesn't matter because Christ is able to dwell in you and glorify God by living in you and pushing you, encouraging you to live a life that will glorify him. That's the beauty of it, that no matter how frail or weak you may see your body or how strong and Lance Armstrong-like you may see your body, God is able to dwell in you. And God is able, once you make that commitment to follow Jesus, God is able to be your God and to lead you into the place where he wants you to go. Now, let's talk about what that means and what that looks like here this morning. Real quickly, a couple minutes left. This truth will keep you on track with God. Why does this truth keep us on track with God? Paul says that it will keep us on track with God. He actually says here, let me just, let me just pick up with it. He says, so we tell others about Christ, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all the wisdom that God has given us. We want to present them to God perfect in their relationship with Christ. See, here's what happens is Paul's hope is that we are going to be perfected in Christ. In the, in the ancient religions that the, the early Christians encountered, they were not concerned about living perfected lives. They weren't concerned about being perfect. Why? They were just trying to do what they need to do. They were just trying to get by. They were trying to make as much money, have as, you know, just be as... Uh, get to the upper class, do whatever it takes to be successful in life. What God wants for us is not what the world wants for us. The world wants for us to be, have, enjoy some degree of success, work really hard for some company, work really hard for some business, do this, do that, get our gold watch when we're 65, retire, and then just go away. That's what the world wants. But God wants you to perfect your life and to be perfect because of what Christ has done. He wants you to be able to love other people as you want to be loved. He wants you to encourage other people as you want to be encouraged. He wants you to care for other people as you hope to be cared for. To sacrifice and have the other brothers and sisters in Christ who are with you to sacrifice for you. And so Paul's hope is to see all of us perfected in who Christ is. That we would be made right, that we would be made perfect. Now, here's the thing. When we talk about this, giving our life over to God actually brings us closer to him. What does that do? When we give our lives over to God, it brings us closer. God is in our lives. He is dwelling inside of us. He is challenging us, and it causes us to bring us closer. Why did the ancient 
Greeks and Romans and even a lot of the secular Jews, why did they not like the gospel? What is one of the main reasons? I mean, there's actually lots of main reasons, so I'm just, this is one of many. But one of the reasons that Paul alludes to here is that religion in the ancient world was largely public. The average religion in the ancient world, whether it be Jewish or Greek or Roman, was public. Why? Because you lived in a certain town, you worshipped a certain god. If you were a part of a certain order, you worshipped a certain god. It was public. Everyone in every city had their own patron gods, and that's the way it was. Same, I mentioned last couple of weeks, same way. If you grew up in Oakland, your god is the Raiders. If you grew up in Colossae, your god is Minerva, or whoever it may be for Colossae. Religion in the ancient world was very public. Every nation, every city had patron gods. That's just the way it was. But the Christian faith was very personal. Personal, not public. Which is why they got accused of being atheists a lot because they didn't go along with the public conception of religion. They believed in their heart that Christ died for them. Now, why is that a stumbling block for people both in the ancient world and today? Because most people don't want to get personal with other people. They certainly don't want to get personal with God. If you go back and you read all the stories of the ancient gods in the ancient world, what were people doing all the time? Their stories are filled with people who hide from gods. Ooh, Zeus might see me doing this, so I'm going to go out behind the woodshed where he can't see me. Ooh, I'm going to do this where they won't see me. Oh, yeah, it'd be great. Seriously, lots of stories are all about hiding from gods. They did it all the time. Because if God couldn't see you, well, God couldn't have an opinion on what you did. We don't... The real God, the God we worship, is not a God that we can hide from because he sees into our hearts and he sees into our souls. And this God is the one who dwells within us if we're a believer in Christ and no matter hiding behind the woodshed will keep God from us. But that's the problem because if you go down to the Great Mall right now and if we did it all as an experiment, we go down to the Great Mall right now and take a field trip, a lot of people that you'll meet, they don't want to know God. They don't want to know other people. Why? Because it's too personal. They don't want God to know what's in their hearts. They don't want other people to know in their hearts. They just wanted to have their walls around their house. I'm sorry, their walls around their life. That's what they want. And as believers in Christ, the only way that we'll break down those walls is to love them so that we can share what God has done for them, which is Paul says all throughout this letter here. And so giving our life over to God brings us closer to him. By the way, I hate to break it to you, but if you're a believer in Christ, God knows everything you've ever done wrong. And even if you're not a believer in Christ, God still knows everything you've ever done wrong. So you might as well, all the junk that you think you're hiding, you might as well drag it out into the light, do some spring cleaning, bring it before God, ask for forgiveness, and be forgiven. Because he knows anyway, so there's no point in hiding it. And you know what? Let me just say for me, I hate that. I mean, that's one of the things about God that I don't like. I don't like that he knows all the bad stuff. Nobody likes that. That's not comfortable. It's not easy. We know that. But it's helpful and healthful. Because the more God gets the junk out of our lives, the more perfected in Christ we are able to become. And finally, real quickly this morning, provide you the wisdom you need. See, when we, we talk about building the house and we talk about putting up the frame, one of the things that we need to do is make sure the frame is built well. We need to make sure that we're living a life of wisdom. Paul says, I'm telling, oh, in him, in Christ, lie hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. I'm telling you this so no one will deceive you with well-crafted arguments. The wisdom that we have the wisdom that we have needs to come from God. God's wisdom is distinct from the world's wisdom because as I mentioned before earlier today, the world's wisdom is what? Do what makes you feel good. Make a lot of money so you can buy a lot of stuff that you don't need but that you want. Make a lot of success. Be famous. Let people applaud you. Ooh, Pastor Douglas, you're so awesome. Ooh. Fill in the blank. It's tempting. It is. It's tempting. We're all tempted by it. 
What's your poison? Seriously, some of you, your poison is money. Some of your poison is fame. Some of you don't know what your poison is because you got so many of them. We all have poisons. We all have those temptations. But the thing is, is that that's worldly wisdom. God's wisdom is distinct from that. God's wisdom says to stop taking what you want and give to people who need. That's the difference. That's radical. And it's very non-Greek, Jew, Roman, secular, Colossian idea. But it is what God calls us to do. That when we build our lives with wisdom, we, become, we have the chance of becoming, and we do become perfected in Christ. See, the truth of the matter is, the truth of the matter is, is that you cannot make a decision to follow Jesus truly and in your heart of hearts. You cannot make a decision to follow Jesus and not become perfected. Some people raise their hand on Sunday in church and be like, oh yeah, I love Jesus, and they won't become perfected because they never made a decision. They just left it. They abandoned it. They ran away from it. But for most of us, when we make a decision, it's for real. This wisdom will keep you, by the way, from being deceived because the world will try over and over again to tell you, look, you know what? You should build the, you should take the, you know, the, the church says build concrete, but you don't need concrete. Your house is not going to go through that. Just build the foundation out of sand. That's all you need. Just build it out of sand because you, you don't live. This is San Jose. It doesn't really rain or get bad here. I mean, a little bit, but not too bad. Just build it out of sand. It'll be cheaper. It'll be easier. If you don't use sand, use Play-Doh. I mean, just go down to Walmart and build your house out of Play-Doh. Build the foundation out of Play-Doh because, you know what? It doesn't really matter. It's just it's not going to fall apart. Have you ever tried, you know, Play-Doh once it gets hard? That's tough. You know, it's, it's fine. It's fine. Paul says to be careful because the world will constantly try to encourage you to live for yourself, to live for yourself and not live for God. But that if you choose to follow Christ, the, word, the worldly wisdom will, it's going to separate from you. You're going to be tempted by it. But ultimately, that the, all the wisdom and knowledge you need is in Christ who dwells within you. That's the wisdom and knowledge that you need. So here it is. This is Paul's letter to the Colossians. First of all, he says, hey, Colossae, how's it going? Let's clear the area. You're believers now. You're believers now, so what do we do? Clearing the area, you're believers now. Here's what we're going to do. We're going to take out the plans, and we are going to do what? We're going to look and see what life it is that God wants us to build. We're going to look at it. We're going to find out how to honor God with our lives. We're going to put down the formwork and the foundation. First step, putting down the formwork and the foundation is to realize that God is Jesus, that Jesus is God in flesh. And when we pour the concrete, not Play-Doh, not sand, we're going to put down concrete, and that is that Christ sacrificed for us. Instead of us having to sacrifice for him, Christ sacrificed for us. That was the first and greatest act of God. And now we're going to put up, we're going to put up the walls. We're going to put up the... The two by fours, we're going to put up the frame. The frame is this, is that when we live wise lives, when we live with wisdom, we demonstrate Christ. <clears throat> wow. We demonstrate Christ to other people. We are able to live a life that is bound to Christ and that honors him. That's it. Let's pray.